Welcome to the Carbon mini-series within the Exploring Opportunities podcast brought to you as part of the Future Farming Resilience Support delivered by NIAB, AKC and Savills working in partnership. My name is Elizabeth Stockdale, Head of the Farming Systems Team in NIAB. Today we're going to explore the science behind nitrous oxide or N2O emissions with my guest today who's Dr Nick Cowan from the UK Centre for Ecology and Hydrology based in Edinburgh. I've been talking about soils, optimising nitrogen use on farms throughout my career as a researcher. The focus when I began work was on maintaining yield while minimising nitrate leaching, but now the focus has widened to include nitrous oxide. Nick, can you give us a brief introduction to your background and what brought you into the study of greenhouse gas emissions and N2O in particular? So I am a senior research scientist at UKCH in Edinburgh in Scotland and I've been working in the field of greenhouse gas research uh, with a focus on nitrogen and agricultural activities for about 12 years now. In terms of what brought me to study greenhouse gases, uh, ever since high school chemistry classes I've been drawn towards the topic of climate change and ultimately environmental sustainability of humanity. Uh, After studying chemistry at the University of Edinburgh, I was given a chance at a PhD project studying nitrous oxides. That was after fertiliser applications. And that was a really big UK scale project I was part of. And then uh, since finishing that, I've done a lot of work on nitrous oxide emissions from agriculture, especially the experimental methodology, the data analysis side of things. And I've also looked at uh, other gases like ammonia, methane, carbon monoxide and volatile organic compounds. Okay, so that that sounds really easy. I'm just measuring some gases from the field. I'm guessing it isn't. Can you tell us maybe a bit about the the kit you use and and what you get up to? So there are lots of different methods, different ways to measure gases exchange within the soil and aquatic bodies and everything else going on in the environment. Uh, We can use gas chromatography, which is where you take a gas sample and you pass it through this big long column that separates out all the gases, or you can use lasers. And uh, one of the big systems that we currently use and is getting more and more common is to use uh, quantum cascade lasers. That does sound posh, doesn't it? Is that expensive science? A new instrument that will measure some greenhouse gases and using a quantum cascade laser is probably between about 150 to 200,000 pounds. And that will set you up at one field site. Okay, so this isn't something that farmers are going to be doing regularly, but I guess it's important to understand that at some really well understood sites so that we can make sensible estimates and and feed into the kind of measurements that we need to underpin the kind of greenhouse gas budgets and, and the net zero ambitions of government. Yeah, we don't expect farmers to go out and do measurements. Uh, we, The majority of measurements in the past have been done what's using a chamber. Uh, we basically stick a box on the soil and we see what comes out of the soil. And lots and lots, dozens, hundreds of experiments over the UK have been carried out using that method. But with the lasers, that gives us uh, ability to do something a bit more complicated, which is measure a whole field at once and measure the wind coming across that field and see what the emissions look like. But that can only be set up at a handful of sites across the country and we have to then kind of estimate what's going on across the rest of the country based on those sites. So it's lots of scientists working, I guess, together in lots of different methods, understanding the background chemistry in the soil or the biology needs to be all put together to make for good estimates and understanding of this N2O or this nitrous oxide. 
Yeah, nitrous oxide is very variable. Uh, each different field will have its own uh, kind of unique soil structure, soil patterns, microbial populations. And when you put nitrogen into the soil, the microbes will essentially react differently everywhere you go. And because we only have a few sites, a few experiments into which we can kind of try and figure out what's happening, it makes it very difficult to then try and fill the gaps and estimate what's going to happen on those farms where no measurements have taken place. Okay, so let's let's go back to that the beginning point. We were talking a lot about nitrous oxide. We'll call it N2O. That's its chemical formula as well. I'm guessing as a bit of shorthand sometimes. Why that focus on N2O in terms of greenhouse gas emissions? It's just one of the greenhouse gases. So why a focus on that from agriculture? For every kilogram of N2O that's released from the soils, it's the equivalent of about 265 kilograms of carbon dioxide. And the reason for that is because it absorbs infrared better than CO2. And so its global warming potential is much higher. Okay, so you use that phrase global warming potential. Can you just give us a, a little bit of background on what we mean by that and how it count for those different gases? Is it a way of just bringing them all onto the same scale? Global warming potential is essentially how much a certain molecule contributes to the greenhouse effect. That is in watts per meter squared, so it's a power function. But the thing that people will want to compare that to is carbon dioxide, because that is the big uh, greenhouse gas. Carbon dioxide is responsible for about 80% of global warming, and methane about 12%, and mm -hmm. N2O about 6%. But because they're all different concentrations and they all have different strengths, then uh, you need some way to equalise them so they're comparable with each other. Okay. And it's it's also to do, it's to do with how much infrared the gas can absorb but also how long it lasts isn't it so is n2o different for both of those reasons compared to co2 co2 actually has a longer lifetime than n2o okay. but n2o is 120 years and the difference between n2o and the other gases is that n2o only breaks down uh, in the stratosphere and there's no way to really strip that out. With carbon dioxide you can plant trees or you can restore wetlands, you can strip that carbon dioxide out of the air but with N2O we're very reliant on the natural processes to break that down over 100 years and so it's it's got a much higher potential to absorb that infrared radiation but also it lasts a lot longer and there's very little we can do about it. And are we getting more N2O now than we were 40-50 years ago? The emissions of N2O are basically directly uh, correlated with the amount of nitrogen that we use. And the amount of nitrogen that we use globally has increased drastically. Is it growing still? It, it's also to do with livestock and manure management and things like that. Concentrations are accelerating. They are going up very fast. Uh, every year now we see about a one part per billion increase in N2O concentrations. So relatively, they're very steep and they've been increasing for a long time. Okay. And, you, and you said they're linked dominantly to livestock management, but also then to, to fertiliser use. So I guess that means that it's a gas that's particularly associated with agriculture in a way it's perhaps not linked to, to other energy production or, or my household greenhouse gas emissions. Agriculture emits a fair bit of carbon dioxide and methane and N2O. 
But in terms of the uh, contribution of N2O in whole, it's mostly agriculture. Agriculture accounts for something like 70 to 80% of uh, N2O emissions in the UK now. If you go back to the 1990s, that was quite evenly split between industry and agriculture. But as industry has cleaned up and reduced its N2O emissions to almost zero, agriculture has kind of still been roughly about the same. There's been small decreases, but it's still roughly about the same magnitude it was about 30 years ago. And uh, it's, it's very difficult to get that number down. So I think nitrogen use in agriculture is obviously very focused not solely but very focused on on fertilizer use to to really supply plant need to, to support productivity um really thinking about how that nitrogen that we use in fertilizer leads to n2o emissions can you help us understand what the processes are that that generate the n2o in the system so when we put nitrogen down onto the soil that that is to feed plants. Plants need nitrogen and every year when you pull the crops out they bring some of that nitrogen with them so we need to keep putting that nitrogen back. The issue is that the microbes in the soil also want that nitrogen and they're always there and they're always trying to consume as much of that nitrogen as they can for various reasons. The microbes, they like lots of different chemical compounds. They need fuel, they need air to breathe, they're just like us, but they're, they're very different in that each different set of microbes might want different compounds at different times and different things depending on the conditions they're in. Some like fresh air and oxygen, some like, you know, basement dwellers thriving mm -hmm. deeper in the soil. Uh, they want that nitrogen and they want it in the same form that the plants want it. So as long as you're putting nitrogen into the soil, the microbes are going to chew through some of that and they're going to emit some gases as a result. Okay, so obviously we, we use dominantly two main forms of nitrogen for fertilizer. We might use urea, urea, but that's transformed to give us the ammonia or ammonium. And we also use nitrate as a form. Are both of those sources of N2O and, and how, do, how does that work out in practice in soils? So in soils, you have hundreds of different microbe types uh, all doing slightly different things. But the, the main process is in the nitrogen cycle are what are referred to as nitrification and denitrification. Nitrification being when the microbes take that ammonium and they strip out the hydrogen and convert it to nitrate. And then denitrification when they take that nitrate and they strip out the oxygen and they convert that back to inert nitrogen gas again. Now, that is the nitrogen cycle, ammonium to nitrate to nitrogen gas. With the microbes, they're messy eaters. They chew with their mouth open and you sometimes get a little bit of N2O coming out as a, as a kind of byproduct. Mm -hmm. So they don't mean to make it, but it comes out anyway. And I guess they make more the more nitrogen they're chewing through. So if we put more nitrogen into the system, more fertilizer, we're going to get by accident, by that messy process of leakage, we're going to get more N2O produced. Or if we put less nitrogen in, we'll reduce that. Is it that simple? In theory, it would help, but it's not always direct as that. Okay. So the, the conversion rates of nitrification and denitrification, they also depend on uh, things like oxygen availability. So where you have a lot of oxygen, that nitrification is that's where that's happening 
uh, and where you don't have a lot of oxygen. So basically when the, the fields are wet and compressed, you get denitrification. The amount of NTO that's released is kind of proportional to how much oxygen is there. And there's a sweet spot right in the middle where the most NTO is produced. The problem is that that's also usually where the plants like to sit in terms of uh, water in the soil. Mm -hmm. So not too dry, not too wet. That's where the plants are happiest, but it's also where the microbes produce the most NTO. So it's a bit like Goldilocks then, that, that sweet spot in the middle. Not too much of anything makes all of these biological cycles, I guess, happy. But as a consequence, because they're working really well, you also get those those leaks. Denitrification will occur quite happily in completely oxygen-free scenarios. So deep in the soil where it's really wet. The problem being that if there's not that much oxygen, the oxygen becomes valuable. So the N2O has oxygen in it. The microbes will strip that oxygen out of the N2O and turn that into N2, which is just inert nitrogen gas. So you can get really fast, strong pools of denitrification with no N2O whatsoever. Or you can get quite a weak patch of denitrification, but because the oxygen is in there in the soil, then you're still getting all this N2O because the oxygen is no longer as valuable as it is. So... I guess most of these processes, from what you've said, are occurring in natural land uses in those woodlands or hedges or any other parts of, the, of that land use system as much as they are in an agricultural field. So the processes are going on. But I guess one of the things that agriculture does is, is put more nitrogen into the system. So it means that there is the potential, at least, for bigger losses of, of N2O. Yeah, so every handful of soil that you pick up will have a slightly different microbiome and slightly different conditions. But on the whole, over the entire world or the entire country, if you're throwing on huge amounts of nitrogen, you're going to release all that N2O because the microbes are going to be doing so much more activity on the whole. So even if there is a patch of this country where you throw nitrogen on, nothing happens. For every patch like that, there will be a patch where you throw nitrogen on and you get enormous emissions of N2O because it's a sweet spot for the microbes. Okay so it's not something that we're necessarily going to be able to say this is how we should ideally manage our soils to keep them in an ideal condition for not producing N2O. It's just something we still don't quite understand or even if we did understand it we probably couldn't manage it well enough to, to make that healthy soil not producing N2O. Yeah, it's difficult. Uh, a healthy soil has a healthy microbiome and a healthy microbiome means there's lots of microbes there to chew through the nitrogen. Uh, each field is going to be unique in a way, depending on what's living in it and how it's managed and the history of the field, things like carbon, pH, uh, all these things that affect NTO production and the microbes. So yeah, uh, unless you can take the microbes out, which is not possible, then you're always going to get a bit of NTO when you put nitrogen down in the field. That's just the reality okay. of it. And and you talked earlier about the importance of, of livestock or the, the, the role that livestock have in perhaps exacerbating or increasing N2O emissions. What's the particular role that, that livestock have and the interactions that are driven there? So when you put nitrogen down to help a crop, the crop will take about 20 to 50% of that and the rest will be consumed by microbes and then you harvest the crop and you eat it with livestock you fertilize the grass they eat the grass they urinate and defecate back into the field there's a cycle of nitrogen that's going on and on and on and every time cattle eat something and it goes back into the field you're losing a percentage of that as nitrogen gases like n2 
And so the more cycling you put in there, the more chance the microbes have to consume that nitrogen and release it before it actually becomes a food product and ends up in a package. So the livestock is essentially cycling nitrogen over and over again and distorting that natural nitrogen cycle, which results in N2O emissions increasing. Okay. And and I guess also just the physical presence of livestock in the field can change those conditions in terms of w- more waterlogged patches or more compacted patches in a different way that than might happen in a, in an arable field. Yeah, the the nature of Ento is it's a bit funny. Uh where you have a lot of nitrogen in one place, uh, the plants just can't compete. So you get areas of poaching around, say, uh, a feeding trough mm-hmm. where the animals spend a lot of time. They trample that ground so it's very compact. It's very good for denitrification and they're constantly urinating and leaving a mess there, crop waste and things. So the, the microbes have all the fuel that they need. They have the carbon, they have the nitrogen, they have the low oxygen conditions, but not too low. And they're just, it's its like a bonfire of Ento around a feeding trough, essentially. So it's a bit like the, the teenagers in the village gathering around the chip shop. You get that real microbial activity happening around where those feeding troughs are. I guess using manures well on a farm, though, can allow us to reduce fertilizer use. Or, for example, in a livestock system, we might be able to integrate clover into our grassland systems and reduce the amount of nitrogen fertilizer we use. So there's also an opportunity in a livestock system to address some of those things by careful management. Yeah, it's definitely important to recycle your nitrogen as much as possible. If you put manures down and you spread them, it's slow release nitrogen because a lot of that nitrogen still has to mineralize out of the materials in that manure. So typically when you throw ammonium nitrate down, the microbes get that immediately and they're competing with the plants already. Whereas where you put manure down, you plow that in before you sow crop, that's a slow release. And so the plant has much more of a chance to compete with that, with the microbes. And so the emission factors you typically see of N2O are, are quite a lot lower for manures than for just normal mineral fertilizers. But the downside to that is you have to store and collect that. And while you're not spending energy producing with the Haber-Bosch process, the cattle are breathing methane so it's it's not a completely clean system either i don't think there are going to be any easy answers here are there in terms of, of managing or reducing nitrous oxide emissions from farming but but if we start to think about what those management options and the things that farmers themselves should have in their mind about how their management interacts with n2o what are the kind of things that are standing out for you in terms of those options for management most of the ways to really reduce n2o are the really basic kind of nitrogen management options, the things that farmers have been doing for decades. Mm -hmm. The the common phrase you'll hear is the four R's. It's right type, right rate, right timing, right placement. And that's essentially making sure that you, you give the crops what they need when they need it. You don't give them too much. You don't give them too little. You get that right. And then... It's it's essentially nutrient use efficiency. The more the plants uptake, the less pollution you'll have of all the nitrogen pollutions, and NTO being one of them. Mm-hmm. No, so but are there any new technologies or new opportunities? I mean, we hear about inhibitors, for example, coming onto the market, and we think about mitigated fertilizers, particularly in terms of ammonia emissions. But will the use of those products also have potential impacts on N2O? There are a few options. If you can get the basics right and uh, just uh, 
be efficient with your nitrogen and you want to mm -hmm. then start moving on to something a little bit more advanced. Yeah, the, the inhibitors, they are on the market. Uh, what they do, though there's different types of inhibitors. Uh, there's ones that slow down the breakdown of urea and there are mm -hmm. ones that slow down the nitrification process in the soils. In a way, they both can reduce ENTO because they make the nitrogen slower to be available so the mm -hmm. plant can compete more. And in studies, we have seen reductions of up to about 90% of N2O emissions uh, when using these inhibitors. But on the other hand, because N2O emissions are so kind of complex and we don't really know what's going to happen at any given site, it would be difficult to predict exactly how much a farmer is going to save in terms of emissions from using these compounds and they do add to the price of nitrogen so there is a little bit of an unknown there for farmers in that they don't know exactly what they will be saving uh, but they do know it will come at an extra cost to them and we see this has been attempted in New Zealand with DCD, the nitrification inhibitor. Mm -hmm. It was applied all over the country and then the Chinese uh, raised a red flag because they found it in the baby milk formula and there was traces of DCD in the in the dairy products coming from New Zealand. So that brought the whole thing to a crashing halt and it hasn't really been applied at a national scale like that again. One of the things that, that stands out for me always with fertiliser use and, and N2O is that real hot spot that comes while the concentrations of the nitrogen whether ammonium nitrate in the soil are very high almost immediately after application and as a result that getting the timing right now that's not always possible I know but is really important is that something that really is borne out by the the data that you're seeing on um, emissions from fertilizer applications it's very unpredictable uh we have long-term experiments set up where we put down, say, 70 kilograms of nitrogen per hectare of ammonium nitrate, and we see nothing. Mm -hmm. And then a month later, we do the same thing again, and we see three, four, five percent of that comes off as N2O emissions. Same kind of weather conditions, same kind of soil moisture, and the microbes were just in a different mood at the time, even though everything was the same. And so we got a completely different set of emissions. It is true if you if you were to look at a thousand experiments, if you get the soil moisture, if it's not too wet, not too dry, if you, if you can plan it, uh, yeah, you can change your N2O emissions. But I, I, I don't think it's really possible for farmers to go out there, choose exactly what day and then make sure they mitigate their N2O to the lowest possible. Uh, I, I don't think it's humanly possible. I guess there are some crops. Um that are moving perhaps to drip irrigation so with the tape so that brings the water right around the roots of the, the crop that potentially also can look at things like fertigation systems which really can change how much nitrogen is applied and, and how it's applied I'm sure we don't have the data on that but what's your feeling about those little and often applications of nitrogen compared to what's more traditional a fairly big application and then a few splits it's it's definitely better to put your nitrogen on slower. Uh, if you have a system in place that allows you to do that, then brilliant. Uh, I think the difficulty is if you are relying on contractors or you have a very limited window in which you can put your nitrogen yeah. on based on the weather or for whatever reason, splitting 100 kilos per hectare into four 
25 kilos at a time will reduce your N2O. It will give the plants a much better chance to compete for that nitrogen. Less will be wasted to the environment. You might even need to use less. That would help N2O emissions. But in terms of practical connotations that come along with that, it can be quite expensive for farmers and there's no way to really measure what uh, effect that, that that's had on N2O emissions. So you can't reward a farmer for that because there's no way to actually quantify what the effect is. Okay, so if we're getting properly to the end of our conversation, just realising how complex it is and how much more money we need to give you to do some more research for us in this area. But actually, what message would you want to give to farmers to take away from this this conversation? What 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 do you want them to be thinking about? Is there anything they can be doing? For the farmers, I think they they need to make environmental savings work for them so it needs to be about saving them effort or money or it needs it needs to be the low-hanging fruit that we need and for a lot of it they've already got that sussed a lot of them won't be putting on too much nitrogen and they'll have looked into this kind of thing because it saves money especially since we've seen nitrogen prices go up for the yeah. past couple of years to absolutely astronomical levels so a lot of farmers in the uk are probably already looking into saving nitrogen if you can save how much you're putting down, time it right, do the basics, you will start to reduce nitrogen pollution in all its aspects. Uh, the less we use, the less emissions that we'll see. Uh, if that means, like you said before, using clover, uh, try and get some of the grazing grasslands with a bit of clover in there to try and get the legumes, putting that back into the soil, or just spreading the fertilizer amounts over different periods and uh, even potentially using the inhibitors once they've been kind of verified. I think they're all valid options, but I wouldn't go rushing into anything. Uh, I think farmers can do a bit of experimentation themselves. Uh, you can try different uh, fertilizer splits, try different fertilizer types, maybe a fertilizer that you've never used before. See what effect it has on the crops. See uh, if you get more nutrient use efficiency out of it. I think uh, every farm is going to be so different and we can't trial them all. So it's up to the farmers to be scientists as well and to work these things out for themselves. So I guess that means taking small areas and strips and, and comparing to, to current practice, not changing everything in one go and then trying to work out what's happened, but, but doing that in that step by step and comparing process, I guess, in particularly in terms of, of yield and the impacts on yield. Yeah, I think split a field in half and do half with one fertilizer regime and half with the other and then see, I mean, fields within themselves will already have some spatial variability about them, but the farmers will usually know where the good patches of the fields and the bad patches are. Uh, and you can you can try, you can go out and program in with the GPS what you want, where, and, and see what effect it has on your yields. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that, that gives that opportunity for perhaps for farmers and science to work together as well. So there are opportunities, aren't there, to be more involved as farmers in some science projects, maybe not in terms of getting you to come and use the um, big pieces of kit on fields, but in terms of being involved in making measurements of protein in crops or nitrogen use, or even just starting to do those carbon footprints or nitrogen use maps across farms to understand what's going on. Yeah, there are more tools now to do these things and farmers can find them online. If farmers have the time to take an interest in it and, and to do some of that and to maybe try and feed some of the data back where possible, then yeah, I mean, 
it is it is a very complicated and difficult question and we probably won't have an answer in the next five years but the more people that contribute to that learning and the more people who share their expertise then yeah the better for us all thanks nick i'll stop annoying you and um and let you get back to work so thank you very much for your time today thanks for having me